Welcome to Blue Collar Zen. We hope you enjoy these tales and conversations recorded here at the Detroit Zen Center. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for taking the time to listen. My name is Myungju, and I am your host. I am a Zen Buddhist monk and the vice abbot and cook here at the center. This introduction to the podcast will essentially attempt to introduce the spirit of the Blue Collar Zen title, as well as the topics of Buddhism, Zen, and meditation. So bear with me as uh, I do my best here to introduce uh, some pretty deep subjects. Essentially, this podcast will be me recording my mentor, who is also the abbot of our Zen Center, as he reads stories and folk tales of spiritual seekers, and then we will have some follow-up conversations together about those stories over our daily green tea. My mentor's name is Hwalsan Sunim. He started the center here in 1990. Walsun is his ordination name, and Sunim is the title given to a Buddhist monk in the Korean language. Sunim is nearly 80, and he has been a monk for more than 45 years. He has been my foremost Buddhist mentor, my first teacher, and I have studied with him for almost 25 years. Over the years, I have asked him to allow me to record his teachings, but he has always refused. But he is a wonderful storyteller and loves the myths and legends within the Zen and Buddhist tradition. And so by a stroke of luck, he agreed to this uh, format and offered to join the podcast. So as we invite you into his tea room each week, I really hope you enjoy it. So Nim has his own story of his journey onto and along the spiritual path, which is quite compelling. I have included it as a follow-up episode to this one, and it's titled, How a Detroit Monk Was Born. Feel free to have a listen. In thinking about how to introduce this podcast, a few things occurred to me. First, I thought I should introduce our Zen Center by way of background so you have some context as to where this podcast is coming from. Second, for those who aren't familiar, I would like to give a brief introduction to both Zen and Buddhism, and also Zen meditation practice. So first, let me introduce our center. The Detroit Zen Center opened in 1990. It is a branch of Sudoksa Temple in South Korea. Sudoksa is our home temple, and it is also the place where both Sunim and myself trained and were ordained as monks. At the heart of our mission here, we provide a place for Zen apprenticeship for both resident and non-resident apprentices. Resident apprentices live as lay monastics, and they follow a daily schedule of meditation, yoga, work, and they have healthy eating and lifestyle while they were in residence. And so essentially the 
Resident apprentices and the monks live and practice together. And this tradition of apprenticeship goes back thousands of years in Zen Buddhist culture. It is at the heart of the Zen tradition. But most of our community are not residents. They are members, students, and friends who come as they can. They join us for meditation, talks, classes or retreats, or other activities. To support the center, the monks and resident students, along with community volunteers, run an organic food business, cafe and grocery store. It's called Living Zen. At the moment, the center is closed to the public because of COVID-19. Detroit has really been hit hard. But it is because of this pandemic that the space opened up for this podcast, a perhaps inadvertent blessing. Our center is in Hamtramck, which is a bit like a borough, an enclaved city that sits inside the geographic center of Detroit. In this two and a half square mile district, we have 25 first languages and a substantial population from Bangladesh, Yemen, and Eastern Europe. It's a highly urban setting with many artists and students here too. Our neighborhood is truly unique and culturally rich. So it's a wonderful place to live and practice. Although we are a branch of a 1,300-year-old, very traditional temple in Korea, we are an American Zen center. Our aim is to extract the essence of Zen Buddhism as it is practiced in the East, but to express it in a way that is relevant within our own culture, without watering it down. It's a challenging aim, and only time will tell if we can succeed. I would like to turn now to try and provide an introduction to Buddhism and then Zen and meditation. It is a slippery topic, and I ask you to forgive me if I under or overstep here. The word Buddhism literally means the study of Buddha. The word Buddha does not refer to a person, but means to awaken. So Buddhism is to study awakening. The historical Buddha was Shakyamuni Buddha. He was considered a fully awakened being and thus was called the Buddha. But any person who has spiritually awakened can be referred to as a Buddha. Shakyamuni was not a god, but an ordinary human being who became extraordinary only due to his level of commitment in searching for and realizing the truth of existence, also called his awakening. So I think it's fair to ask, what is awakening? What are we awakening to or from? Buddhism offers that we are attempting to awaken from a dream or a fundamental delusion. You may have heard in Buddhism the expression that everything is a dream including ourselves. This expression is not a denial that we exist or that our lives and actions don't matter. On the contrary, what is being expressed here is that anything that doesn't last, anything that comes and goes, is not real 
or in other words, is a dream. Most of us live and act out of an unconscious, fundamental belief, a very deep conditioning, that we exist as a separate self from the world around us. And we act as separate selves, filled with endlessly circling needs and wants, fundamentally dissatisfied and alone in the universe. This is the human world. But Buddhism offers that we can transcend or perhaps penetrate through this human world and awaken and return to our true world, which has no beginning and no end. This so-called true world can also be called true nature or point of origin. Although this teaching is offered, Buddhism encourages us to investigate the situation for ourselves and find out through our own experience whether we are indeed a separate self or not. Do we have a true nature or not? Is there such a thing as awakening? Encasing us in the human world are our thoughts and feelings. Thoughts and feelings rise up because we have five senses. If we had no senses, no eyes, ears, nose, etc., then it would be impossible to give rise to thoughts or feelings. We would be instead kind of like a conscious blob. But we do have the five senses, and so we do have thoughts and feelings. At some point in our human history, we developed language, and so we became further encased in the world of words and conceptual thought. These characteristics are what allow us as human beings to survive and develop, to discern and create, and these can no doubt be wonderful. But Buddhism presents that the human world is only a very limited part of the picture. It encourages us to go beyond, or perhaps before, the world of words, thoughts and feelings, and experience true nature or our point of origin. It offers that this experience is available to anyone who is willing to put forth sincere desire and effort to experience truth. So that is Buddhism in a nutshell. And within Buddhism, there are countless paths and methods toward this common aim. Zen is one of those methods. The Zen path is characterized by simplicity and directness and an emphasis on physical practice. But what is Zen? What is the method of Zen? I would like to quote my teacher here. To fully engage the activity of the present moment, wholeheartedly and without reservation, is at the heart of Zen practice. It is within just this ordinary living that we express our true selves and realize freedom. So, for example, in my own life, I am the temple cook, so I spend a lot of time preparing plants and vegetables. So my spiritual practice there is to attempt, not often successfully, to give my full attention, my heartfelt attention, to those vegetables. When I gather the vegetables, I should carry them like I would carry something precious. 
When I slice the vegetables, I should just slice them. No room for sideshows. My entire world becomes the knife, the cutting board, and the vegetables. Of course, it always, doesn't always work out, and I can easily get sidetracked. And that's why it's called a practice. And Zen offers that by learning to concentrate like this, which is also called absorption, what we are becoming absorbed in is reality, a unified experience, where we are not an individual self anymore, but have become one with what is outside and inside. So Zen practice is pretty simple in theory, but difficult to do. Take, for example, sitting meditation. In Zen sitting meditation, we are taught to sit in a clear, upright posture and are given something to concentrate on, usually our breath. But most people report that when they try to meditate in the beginning, they quickly get distracted. But here, what we're doing is building up the muscle of concentration. Without the distraction, or the irritation, so to speak, no muscle will develop. So the distraction is very important, and not something that we should uh, try to discard, but to really recognize as part of the process. In Zen, we may start on the meditation mat. And because it is such a straightforward practice, Basically, we are sitting and breathing. Ultimately, Zen meditation isn't reserved for sitting on a mat, but is a practice as a way of life. When sitting, we sit. When working, we just work. When it's time to think, we think. That kind of thing. So Zen study is, by definition, a study rooted in practice, not thought. We aim to engage wholeheartedly with any activity or person that appears in our world. But how do we do that with, for example, a negative emotion, or an activity we don't like, or a person for whom we have deep aversion? My Zen mentors have always recommended starting with the small things. One time I asked a teacher for advice around a really negative relationship. To my surprise, after listening carefully to my story, he suggested to me that I start doing the temple dishes with more awareness and loving kindness. It was pretty shocking to hear this, and at first it seemed totally unhelpful. But after a while, I got it. And sure enough, my mind changed in that relationship. Zen teachers often advise not to confront difficult situations or mental or emotional states directly. I have often heard from them that emotions and mental states cannot be controlled, but can only be guided by our behavior. So this very simple exercise of regulating behavior as a way of guiding our emotions and mental states. This forms the basis of all Zen training and Zen meditation itself. The idea here, again, is that conduct, behavior, 
guides the emotions. As I mentioned earlier in Zen meditation, we might be taught to sit up straight, gaze softly, and hold our posture. We might be told to follow our breath. From the outside, we look as if we are a Buddha. But inside, it's often quite a different story. Many people discover when they take up meditation that their minds are wild. And they often think that because they don't feel peaceful sitting there, that they're making a mistake. I think it's important to say that this is not true. Acting like a Buddha while feeling like a lunatic is legitimate, real Zen practice. We just have to keep at it. In the same way that when we take up an instrument, our fingers may bleed for a while before we can sound any good. It is absolutely the same in meditation. We need patience. So in light of this, we may understand monastic training models, where aspiring seekers of enlightenment volunteer into a rigorous training environment. The old masters knew that to transform the mind takes training, discipline, support, a community, a teacher, and a lot of work, and a lot of time. So those of us doing meditation infrequently should not expect miracles. It is a true case of what we put in, we get out. In my own study with various Zen masters, both in Korean, Japanese, and American monasteries, the heart of this teaching has been constant. We transform ourselves and our emotions by paying attention and giving our hearts to whatever we are doing or experiencing. So we say in Zen that our thoughts and feelings don't belong to us. And this is why we can't change them. In the same way, when you hear my voice, I think it's true that my voice is simply rising out of a vast field of awareness. My voice may be quite personal to you because you are hearing it, but it isn't yours. You cannot control it. Our thoughts and feelings also appear out of our vast field of awareness. They simply rise up based on circumstances and experiences. We call that karma. They don't belong to us. In fact, we don't know where they come from. They just rise and fall. So trying to change them directly doesn't work. What we rely on in Zen is what we can change, our behavior. And fortunately, there is an intrinsic relationship there where by changing our behavior and our conduct, our emotions follow. There are some wonderful secular teachers whose teachings are based in science. Sam Harris comes to mind. He is an incredible thinker, an avid meditator, and a neuroscientist. And he may be able to help us explore this kind of phenomenon of how behavior leads emotions. But in Zen, the monks and teachers get right down to it, and we just act accordingly. I've come to feel that the Zen path is not necessarily hard nor easy. And to use the same analogy from before around learning to play an instrument, 
If we want to play casually, then it makes sense to take up practice casually. We might watch a video, play from time to time, and our skill will develop accordingly. But if we have sincere love for an instrument or music or a burning desire to play, then we may take more appropriate steps. We might search for and study under a teacher and spend a serious amount of time practicing. It isn't an easy path. We may join a conservatory and make sacrifices. If we respect our teacher, we will face their direction and criticism. This is apprenticeship. I think apprenticeship was once pretty common, but has been replaced now by pay-for-study colleges and universities. Historically, if you wanted to learn a skill, whatever skill, you found a master and entered into an apprenticeship. Clearly, the more time spent honing a skill and being around the skills of masters and experts, the more our own skill will develop. And so it is in spiritual life. Traditionally, to study Zen Buddhism, you had to find a teacher and move into his or her community. Your entire life, then, was tracked toward spiritual fulfillment and overcoming its obstacles. With the eventual aim of re-entering society as a spiritual steward, rather than as a disenfranchised human. In this way, Zen Buddhism became a living tradition. And now this tradition has come west. Sometime around the 1950s, waves of spiritual teachers migrated from the east, often escaping social and political turmoil. They came from Tibet, China, India, Japan, Vietnam, Korea, Thailand, and other nations. Almost in beautiful synchronicity, a generation of students lie in wait here in the Western Hemisphere, who were facing their own tumultuous conditions. We can imagine the scene, these migrating teachers, often traveling alone and without language, stepping off the boat or plane onto unknown soil, with the only thing they would have to attract students was their presence and perhaps their exoticism. Because these Asian teachers came from apprenticeship-based ancient models, they could only teach as they had been taught. And so they required of their new Western disciples a level of practice and sacrifice that would today be absolutely implausible and maybe even considered absurd. My teacher, along with his contemporaries, were the first generation of Western students studying under Asian masters. Many of these students have now become teachers in their own right, and they have carried a heavy burden. First, they had to bridge the enormous cultural gap and translate both literally and figuratively the wisdom of their Asian teachers for themselves. And now secondly, they have to go on to do the same thing for their own students and fellow Westerners who have little appreciation for the hardship they endured. There is no roadmap for this. We owe both these teachers and students an enormous debt of gratitude. 
Most of those migrating Asian teachers have now died, leaving in their wake varying trails of communities and imported versions of their ancient traditions. The collision of the two cultural worlds has created very fertile soil for our own generation. As a byproduct of the enormous amount of work and effort of these teachers and students, we now have things like meditation apps, yoga centers, Zen centers, mindfulness retreats, etc. at our disposal and at our fingertips. So as we move into a more apparently secular age, where meditation, Buddhism, and other traditions are stripped of their forms, culture, and religious ties, I often wonder where this will lead. Although we may need to evolve beyond cultural traps inherent in these practices, I worry that if we strip too much away, we will forget the stories of these lineages which transmits something hard to measure. I see Zen and Buddhism here in America becoming very neat, orderly, and practical. But I do hope it will not become overly sanitized or lifeless here in America. It used to be culturally acceptable to take up a spiritual life as a way of life, like becoming a priest or a nun, But interest in becoming a member of clergy in our own traditions has died out for various reasons. I often wonder if the tide will ever turn and the hunger for spiritual awakening will grow deep enough for an ancient model to truly unfold here in the West. In my own case, I view Zen apprenticeship and training as an unparalleled opportunity and an undeserved blessing. So that about wraps up the introduction to the spirit of the Blue Collar Zen podcast. I would like to close by sharing that I looked up the term blue collar in the Oxford English Dictionary, and it said that blue collar refers to the people who do manual work rather than conceptual work. And really, I can't think of a more appropriate description of Zen practice, and especially my teacher's style. I have studied with him for more than 20 years and have come to see that it is his way of life, how he lives, which is the heart of his teaching. It isn't his words or talks, however wonderful, but his actions. It is his work. And so I have been very fortunate to study with a blue-collar Zen teacher. I hope you enjoy these tales and conversations as we open the door to the worlds of other spiritual seekers. I hope their journeys inspire you on your own spiritual quest, wherever it may lead.